Welcome to the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. Happy New Year again, everyone, and uh, especially I want to thank you two. Boy, we're freezing here this morning, and these two are showing all the real Zen spirit of just hanging in there. It's like being at a ski resort without the skiing <laughs> today. But uh, I brought out an extra heater. Hopefully, our electrical system here can handle it, and uh, just get as close as you can. We have uh, all the tea you can drink. <laughs> Uh, today we're continuing to look at uh, Master Dogen's diary, the Hokyoki, from his time when he was in China. And I like to say uh, sometimes the more things change, the more things stay the same. We're going to see that uh, the Hokyoki today has some sections that I think are very touching and pertinent for our upcoming Jukai ceremony, undertaking the precepts next week. There are some passages here in Dogen's words that really speak to our ceremony, our Rakasu, um, the connection that we make with our lineage. And uh, I'm going to try to highlight those today. And also you're going to see a lot of things where you're going to say, what is that about? Why were people worried about that back then? These big issues that seemed so important to Dogen that he went to his teacher with these big questions. And you're going to see that it's a lot like today. You know, when I got sick a few weeks ago, it suddenly puts into perspective. You say, all the things you're worried about in life, why am I worried about that? Think about what you were worried about 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Maybe something, someone in your job or some problem you have in life or some big decision you can make. And I bet you today, when you think back at it, you probably can't even remember the people involved or what the issues were or why you were so upset about it. It seems so silly. Well, here, when we look back all these hundreds of years, we see that Dogen was very concerned about some things, very concerned, went to his teacher, really seemed to be upset about some things, and you wonder why. Well, first off, that was Dogen. Dogen was always upset about something. He was just that kind of guy. Even 20 years later, he was always writing and he was very detail-oriented about things. Sometimes here, you get the sense he went to his teacher and, and it, it doesn't say here in so many words, but his teacher must have said, Eugene, oh, Dogen, you're back again. Another question? Uh-huh. And Dogen would ask his question and Ju Ching would do his best to answer it. And you can see as soon as Ju Ching closed the door on Dogen, maybe a few times he just shook his head. Oh, that boy with his questions. Maybe my joke is that he, he gave him Dharma transmission and sent him back to Japan just to get rid of him after a while. I don't think that's, that's literally the case. But Dogen was actually, a, as you'll see, very, very concerned about some issues that we have to wonder 
what they were about. Well, we're on page um, 13, and uh, I asked at midnight. That means uh, he went to, into the master's private room at midnight to ask uh, this question. In your Dharma talk, you said the bower and the bowed to are empty by nature. That means, for example, teacher and student, or Buddha and you are empty by nature. The mind-to-mind -mind communication is wondrous and inconceivable. Its heart is profound and it cannot be known. There is no way to reach it superficially. Doubt cannot touch it. Teachers in the scriptural schools also talk about mind-to-mind -mind communication. Is it the same as what is taught in the ancestral path? And Rujing said, you should know very well the ultimate importance of mind-to-mind -mind communication. Also, you could translate it as heart-to-heart -heart because the kanji is the same, mind-to-mind -mind or heart-to-heart -heart in Chinese and Japanese. Without it, Buddhas would not have appeared and Bodhidharma would not have come to China. Okay, I'll just stop there. And he goes on, he says some other things just to emphasize it. Well, you know, that's what I'm feeling with all of you today. Distance has nothing to do with it. Time has nothing to do with it. The fact that you're here is lovely. But what I truly feel is mind-to-mind -mind and heart-to-heart -heart connection for all of us. And that has been so vital in our tradition. When we have our Jukai ceremony next week, it is just an affirmation of this mind-to-mind, heart-to-heart communication through all the generations, through all of us in the Sangha, not just, you could say we're kind of friends, we're kind of a family, we're kind of comrades practicing together. But it's more than that. We're one heart, one mind here. And that was as important in Dogen's time as it is now. So this is a good section. This is a good section. And then there's a couple of sections about whether um, reading scriptures and books are important. I'll just read one real quick. The other day I visited Elder Daguang of Mount Ayuwang. That was another monastery down the street and asked some questions. He, he said the Buddha's ancestors way and the scriptural school are like water and fire, that they are far apart as heaven and earth. Then I'll skip down, Rujing answered, it's not only Dagwan who makes such mistaken statements. Elders of monasteries here and there are also like this. If they don't understand the teaching of the scriptural schools, how can they enter the ancestors' inner room? They are elders, but they speak nonsense. So this was about, you know, you, you find the people in Zen still who say, all you have to do is sit. You don't have to study anything. You don't have to read anything. You don't have to understand anything about Buddhist philosophy. And as I will always tell you, you need to know a little. Don't get caught in the philosophy. But one of the reasons I do all this talking here is if I talk about emptiness, if I talk about what it means to, to see beyond self, you have to have a, a, some idea what we're doing. Just sitting is, is not enough. I, it's like your pottery class. If I just gave you clay and said, make it a pot, that's not quite enough. You do need a teacher to kind of show you some basic forms and techniques. You need the experience. It's very much the same here. So don't ever think that Zen is about being beyond 
all words are all study. You need some. Just don't get caught and be a prisoner in study. Okay? Now, the next section is just one of these. I can just say arcane, just obscure discussions here. And I'll try to summarize it as best we can. I'm not going to make you read all this. The people in the Mahayana, that's Northern Chinese Buddhism, which we belong to, had a problem. They got the original Buddhist texts from India, and they're very different. And they couldn't explain why the Buddha's original texts seemed to be teach a kind of Buddhism that was very straight and simple, follow your breath and and the Mahayana is very fantastic, very expansive in its thinking. And they didn't have much of a sense of history, so they had to explain this. So what they basically came up with is that the Buddha, in his original teachings, kind of kept it simple because people couldn't understand. The real teaching came later with the Mahayana, which is, of course, what we do. When people could understand better. So that's why the Mahayana means the great vehicle and the Hinayana, the Indian, means the lesser vehicle. And that's what this section is about. Now we know that the Mahayana texts that we study were written hundreds of years after the Buddha. They were not written by the Buddha, the historical Buddha. So we've got a problem here. The original theory was the Buddha spoke these texts and then they buried them in the ground and they were discovered later. You see, when he thought people would be ready for them. Religion is weird. You know, the Mormons did the same thing. You know, the Mormons said there was the New Testament, but they discovered the new New Testament and they became the Mormons, you see. So as I always say here, even though our Mahayana Buddhism was written a long time after the Buddhas, the Buddha, does that mean it's not Buddhism? And as I say to you all the time is, no, it's Buddhism because it has the spirit of Buddhism. In some ways, I actually think it's an improvement. It was an adaptation on the original Buddhism. You know, like um, the Wright brothers built the first airplane, but now we fly 747. So something comes later, even though the Wright brothers didn't build it, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Still, the same principle of aerodynamics keeps the plane in the air, right? 747 or the Wright brothers plane. Uh, so what we're practicing is real Buddhism. But in these days of Dogen, they had a hard time to explain it. So this whole section is about that why. How come our first ancestor is this guy from the Hinayana called Mahakashapa? And it's not the other guy, Manjushri, and why isn't Manjushri even mentioned in the early scriptures? He should be the real successor, but he's not even mentioned in the book. And the guy who's our first successor is one of these Hinayana teachers. How come? 
And Ru Jing came up with an answer that I kind of think that Ru Jing just really shook his head and kind of was just being creative here because I've never heard such an answer before. But he said, ah, Manjushri was there, but he was hidden. Behind, he was actually the teacher of the Buddha. And Mahakashapa, even though he pretended to be one of the early guys, really had the heart of one of the later guys. And so Rujing says, and the fellow Ananda, who had this fantastic memory, memorized all the scriptures and divided them into the early scriptures and the late scriptures. And that's why. And Dogen said, if I was Dogen, I would have said, well, that makes no sense, but it's as good an answer as any. So that's why. Okay? It makes no sense. What happened was that the Mahayana scriptures were written centuries later. Mahakashapa was not originally a Zen fellow, our first ancestor. There's the famous story that the Buddha held up a flower and only Mahakashapa smiled, understanding the, the wordless meaning of it all. That story was written hundreds of years later to explain why Mahakashapa is our first ancestor. It's a mess. The entire Buddhist lineage, most of the stories trying to connect us with the Buddha are like this. So next week we have our Dukai ceremony. And I'm saying that our people are going to join the lineage, the lineage that goes from you to the sixth ancestor through Dogen, no, actually I got that backwards, Dogen through the sixth ancestor to Bodhidharma and then back to India through all these names, Nargajuna, and then finally back to Mahakashapa and then to the Buddha. And it's not true. Or is it? This is the thing. We have to face facts in these days that a lot of these stories are not historical. As you can see here, even then, in Dogen's time, they're struggling to explain the connection of these people that don't make sense. How can this be our lineage? Because it doesn't fit. Well, it's a lineage of the heart to heart. It's a lineage of somebody. Somebody made these teachings. Somebody kept it alive. And I can give you a very easy explanation. I know you Europeans, you all trace your family back 500 years, 600 years. You probably know everybody. But um, can you name your grandparents? Can you name their grandparents? You know their names. And you're the geneticist. You're probably getting into it. What are we talking about? Like 72 people now, right? You get back a few generations. Even in your own family, whoever brought you to where you are, it is very doubtful that you actually know the names of people beyond a few generations. And if you've, 
you've researched maybe your own genealogy. You may have some names and some documents, but you really don't know who these people are. But they were somebody, yes, somebody kept these teachings alive. Somebody kept your blood alive and your family and nurtured you and brought you to where you are. So when we go into the ceremony on Sunday of next week, it doesn't mean that the list we actually recite of all these ancestors is the list. A lot of the list doesn't make sense. People did not live at the same time. They never knew each other. They could not have been teacher and student. Somebody somewhere we now know strung this list together to get somehow back to the Buddha. Hmm. It's not true. And it's as true as true can be because it's heart to heart. I still get into disagreements these days with other Buddhists who say, how dare you? You doubt that this list is true. The, it says in the book, this list is true. You must believe it. And I say, well, I don't take it quite so literally. And for that reason, they, some people consider me a heretic. I doubt. I get this a lot, actually, from some very conservative Buddhists. But I'm here to say I believe and don't believe at the same time. The story that is told here about Mahakashapa and the, why the other guy is our ancestor, even though he's not really, makes no sense. Juching obviously was making it up as he was going along and probably closed the door when Dogen left and went, gee, I'm glad I got through that question. So then the next question. Oh. Now we, I told you that Hokioki goes from all these high, big topics down to all kinds of things. Next we go to socks. Rujing said, during the time you are training, oh, wait a second. Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, I missed one. Dogen, do you know that putting on socks while you are seated in the teaching chair, do you know about putting on socks while you are seated in the teaching chair? I made a small bow and said, teacher, will you show me about socks? So Rujing said, when you are seated, seated, seated in the teaching chair to give a talk in the monk's hall during Zazen, you should wear your ceremonial socks. As you put them on, you cover your feet with your right sleeve. This is to avoid being rude to Manjusri Bodhisattva. Okay. The sacred monk whose image is on the altar facing him. So this is, okay, he's going to sit and teach, and the, the, the Buddha's there, and he needs to put his socks on. So what he's saying is, cover your feet so you don't rudely show. It's actually very practical. I have another one. Usually we don't wear socks in the Zen hall, even in the winter. We have broken that rule today. I am wearing three socks, three layers of socks, and I'm not ashamed of it. And I try not to point my feet your way. Next big question. During the time you are training, practicing zazen intensely, do not eat wild rice. It may give you a fever. Also, do not do zazen in a drafty place. Well, we're a little drafty today. But at least we're avoiding our wild rice. 
Rujing said, when you get up from Zazen to walk, you should practice the method of slow walking meditation. Do not go more than half a step with each breath. This is our method of kinhin. Okay. And then we get into now another very arcane discussion that I've talked to our uh, Kesa master with today. And um, I believe I researched this a few years ago, so I have some idea what this is about. But it says this. Rujing said, Zen practitioners of ancient times all wear the simple robe. The simple robe is just the robe that goes over the shoulder. But sometimes they wear the combined robe. The combined robe was kind of a one-piece outfit. Now everyone wears the combined robe all the time. This is a degenerate custom. If you want to follow the ancient style, you should wear a simple robe even when you visit the palace. Also, at the time of Dharma transmission or when receiving the Dharma robe or the Bodhisattva precepts, you should wear the simple robe. Monks who practice Zen nowadays say the simple robe is the uniform of the precept school monasteries. They are wrong. Do, they do not know the ancient custom. Everybody always wear the simple robe. Except it's not so simple. Let me explain why. When the Buddha was first in India, it's very warm. They wore, you've seen the Indian monks, they wear one robe over and they keep their other shoulder bare. They cover their uh, left shoulder and the right shoulder is bare. Down the street here, about 10 minutes from Scuba, there's a Sri Lankan temple here in Japan to service the Sri Lankan community and these poor monks. I visit them from now on now in time. They came from Sri Lanka. You know Sri Lanka, very hot. Now they're living here in the middle of winter in Japan. Well, when the robes came from the south to China, the monks started putting on more and more robes. I'll confess, I have my koromo, as the, I see others do, and under that I have my kimono. Under that I got the sweater. Under that, I have some other things I don't mention to you because they're kind of private, but I've got a, a little, a few clothes. These Sri Lankan monks didn't know what to do. So they came up with a beautiful solution. You know, they have these beautiful orange or saffron robes. So they found saffron sweaters and hats. They wear lots of sweaters under their robes, because they have to. You know, they're from the South. But they match their robes beautifully. But one of the monks, I have to tell you this, I looked, uh, he had this beautiful orangey hat. And I looked closely. You have to be an American football fan to get this. But it said Miami Dolphins, because it happens to be that the color of their robes is the official color of the Miami Dolphins football team. And somehow he got these beautiful saffron Miami Dolphins hats, which he wears with his robes. Now, in those days, as you can see, people are fighting about robes and things about robes that we really don't care about so much anymore. The robes we're wearing, we wear Nyohoe Kesa, which we sew in our Sangha, which is different from the way the Soto shoe has their Kesa, which is made in a kind of store. You buy it 
And the ones that are sewn here in our sangha and some other sangha, the Nyoho Akesa, developed by uh, Kodo Sawaki and others, a uh, little different style. So even these days, we're still kind of arguing about what is the right style robe. Okay? It's important and not important. Let me teach you when it's important. You have a, a Roxa you're wearing. This section has the right attitude about the Roxa. Cherish it. Do not be attached. Do not think that a beautiful jewel, like the kimono you were wearing the other day, some fancy robe is more precious than a simple robe. But also don't think that a simple robe is always more precious than a fancy robe. And here he tells several stories. He tells a story about someone who was given a simple robe and cherished it. But at the same time, don't consider it a piece of property. It's a gift. It's almost like it's being lent to you. Another fellow received a very fancy robe, and he was a very simple man. And uh, you would think he would say, oh, I don't want such a fancy robe. No, he received the fancy robe also as a gift. He didn't wear it very often. He put it away, but he cherished it. Another man had robes made out of rags, cleaning clothes. I'm sure he washed them before he made the robe, but he cherished it. Another man, etc., etc. When you receive your robe for Jukai, cherish it. Don't consider it anything less than a treasure, but neither be attached to it. It's a symbol for that heart-to-heart, -heart, you see. The robe is a symbol for all the people. The robe is a symbol for our tradition. Cherish it. Neither consider it too fancy. It's not a king's robe. Neither consider it too plain. So with that in mind, let me just read a couple of sections here of uh, what the Dogen said. Since I became abbot of this monastery, I have never worn a decorated robe, said Rujing. Nowadays, there are elders in name who only follow the crowds and wear decorated robes. To me, this makes them appear as if they have no true realization. I never wear robes like that. The world-honored one himself, the Buddha, wore only robes made of coarse cloth throughout his lifetime. He never wore beautiful robes. On the other hand, it is also incorrect to make a point of wearing robes that are inferior or of poor workmanship. If you make a point of wearing such a robe, you'd just be like someone, and he says, who made robes out of his own hair. In other words, neither despise nice robes nor be overly attached to simple robes. Therefore, descendants of the Buddha should simply 
wear whatever plain robes come to hand. It's no good to be extreme one way or the other. Extreme, extremism doesn't work. It's like trying to... Da -da -da. Those who are concerned that their robes appear impressive are small-minded people. Don't forget that a robe made of, and it says bathroom cloth, even they would wash it first after, but is acceptable in the ancient way. But then I said to my teacher, but isn't it true that the Buddha gave a fancy brocade robe to Mahakashapa, our first ancestor? And Rujing says, when the World Honor One first saw him, he gave him a fancy robe. But Mahakashapa received this robe and the Dharma, yet he continued to follow the simple practice day and night without stint. He never lay down to sleep, and he always treated the robe with respect and full ceremony. Every day he did zazen. In other words, don't be attached to your robe. Okay. I'll do one more here. Also, things that they were worried about back then. In the old days in China, you had different schools of zazen. Uh, different schools of Buddhism. You had the Zen schools who practiced Zen. You had the doctrinal schools that were very philosophical. You had the precept schools, which studied the precepts. And then you had monasteries without lineage. Which ones are the right ones? What do you think Ru Jing answered? Well, he goes on for a while and he says there's really no difference between all of them. And they all have their good points. But in the end, the Zen schools are the best. So it's quite natural even these days to always feel that your way is the best. I mention that again because I'm, again, in debate with some other Buddhists about which is the best way to do things. As you know, I, I was very critical of some... Buddhists who said that our kind of uh, ongoing practice we have here where someone is sick or someone has faced a life crisis or someone is nursing someone is not real practice. And some people said, no, no, you have to really go to a monastery to practice. This is just the foolishness we argue about now. This was the foolishness they argued about then. Everybody always thinks they have the best way. Right? I just want you to find your way. And you to find your way. Not even my way. You're reading a book by Nishijima Roshi now. Don't even follow his way. Take what's valuable there. And find your own way. When you're a potter, you're learning to make pots. You get to a certain point where you have to start making your own not your teacher's shape, right? She's shown you the basics, and now you have to have your own form, what's right for you. So I'm not even going to read all this silly nonsense here about which is the right school. Is it the precept school, or the doctrine school, or the Zen school? 
You make your own school. But I will read the last paragraph just so you can hear Ru Jing's conclusion. It is true that there were five schools in India. There were only various styles of one Buddha Dharma. In China, the division into five schools is not like this. If there was a wise king in this country, such confusion would not exist. We would not have all these mixed up schools, people disagreeing about what is the real Buddhism. In the end, what is clear is that the design, customs, and traditions of the Zen monasteries are all direct teachings of the ancestors through direct transmission by the true heirs of the Buddha. In other words, the Zen teacher says Zen is best. No surprise. The authentic way of the seven original Buddhas is only found in the Zen monasteries, although the term Zen is really a mistaken name. You don't even need to call it Zen because we're really, we're real Buddhism. Why do you even distinguish us? You don't even have to call it Zen, just call it Buddhism. Our customs and traditions are the ones transmitted by Buddha ancestors, and our monasteries are central to the stream of the Dharma. Precept school and doctrinal school monasteries are only tributaries, only side roads. Buddha ancestors are the Dharma kings, and when the king is installed, he is like the king of the world, and all people are subject to him. I have to disagree a little here. It's very tempting for this Zen teacher to say that Zen is the real way and the other ways are not. I would never say that. My way is right for me. When we do the Jukai ceremony, I hope it's because people believe that they have found a way, a good way, that's right for them. Recently, again, I got in trouble with some conservative Buddhists because I went online and I said, you know, personally, I'm not so much a believer in certain ways of re reincarnation, rebirth. And some people said, you're a heretic. Really? And I said, but neither do I think I'm the only one who's right. When I said that to the people who argue about ordination, that I think that people who are in hospital or people who are nursing the sick should also be considered Buddhist priests, I would never say that their way is wrong. I think our way is right for us. So if I had been Juching, I would have said, perhaps the doctrinal school was right for the doctrinal school. The Vinaya school was right for the Vinaya people. The Zen school was right for the Zen people. And I will go further and say, perhaps Christianity is right for Christian people. Judaism is right for Jew Jewish people or Islam. Maybe if someone is an atheist and they find some truth and peace there, that's right for them. So when we celebrate Jukai this week, I don't want you to think that we are committing to the one true way. We are committing to the one true way for us. And there are many true ways. I never want you to feel that you have to come here because I'm someone who's saying this is true and everything else out there is wrong. You come here because you find something here. I hope it helps you. 
Do you understand? That's heart to heart. I'm not someone who said in India they were wrong with their Hinayana, the early Indian tradition was wrong, and the Mahayana, that was real Buddhism, like they tried to say here. No, it was right for different people. Okay? I guess that means that uh, Rujing would throw me out of the monastery. I don't know. Any question? Okay. So we summarize. Next week, Jukai, we found the good way for us. Not necessarily the right way for everyone, but I hope it's the right way for you. You will receive robes. Cherish them. Do not think of them as treasures. Do not think of them as as uh, something to be attached to, but honor them. And three, heart to heart. That part is as real as real can be. We're all connected, heart to heart and mind to mind. Okay? Please take those points away with you from the talk today. Shall we close the sutras? Thank you for joining us for the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Tree Leaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.